I've decided this morning we'll have a chat. I remember last Sunday, having come back from being out on the ocean for 12 days, Diane began the sermon by saying she drew the short straw with the sermon on gossip. I didn't get a straw at all. Today we're going to consider the topic of murder. Isn't that exciting? We continue in this series called Guilty. The series is being done not because Sunday is Lent, but we're in the midst of the Lenten season. Sunday is always a day of resurrection. It's a day of hope. It's a day of good news. There will be good news that will come. Hang on. But before we get there, we need to recognize that while this subject of guilt is not intended to bring us shame, it is intended, nor is it intended to riddle us with guilt, but it is to help us realize we are a guilty people. Look over here. There's a prison. And already we have considered gossip last Sunday, haughty eyes or pride two Sundays ago. We put ourselves in prison by not doing what God calls us to do. We create a prison for ourselves. Oh, some of the things we do can actually put us in real prisons. But it is a real prison to be guilty of these things that God says, I don't want this to be a part of your life. And today we look at the topic of of murder. Oh boy. I have a couple stories to tell you. I remember many years ago, Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, was being interviewed by a reporter. And it was during a time when several high-profile pastors had, had affairs, and it was all over the news. And she was asked this question. If Billy was ever unfaithful to you, would you divorce him? And she thought for a moment or two, and it was quiet, and she said, I would never divorce Billy for something like that. Now, murder, I would consider. (laughs) But who of us, in any serious way, has ever considered murder as something you would choose to do? Really take the life of another person. Carolyn and I were having a serious end-of-life discussion several years ago as we were putting our end-of-life issues together and telling our children about what we were hoping for and where they could find things we hadn't hidden them, what, who, who to contact for what, that sort of thing. She turned to me in the midst of the conversation and she said this, and I'm quoting her exactly. Quote, I want to die before you do. She went on to say, if you die before me, I'll kill you. I didn't feel threatened. I knew that it was in jest. At least that's what I thought. But I must say, for the next several nights, I slept with my eyes open. (laughs) I have experienced murder up close and personal. I was a sophomore in college, and a close friend of mine who was working at an all-night gas station was robbed. After the robbery, the assailants took him into the restroom on the side back of the gas station, and they executed him. Eight years later, while I was serving a church in California, a young man in his early 20s was run down by a gang member 12 miles out of our town. 
Not only did he run over this young man, he backed his truck up to go over him again and then finally ran over him the third time to make sure he was dead. I just can't imagine intentionally killing another human being. Even before I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and became a follower of his, I never had gotten angry enough to consider taking another person's life. I got angry enough to hit them, but not to kill them. There's no excuse for the hitting either. But I have one more story to tell. One afternoon more than 20 years ago, I was in a rather long session with a couple in their middle 30s, trying to help them sort out their very broken and hostile marriage relationship. I had tried on several occasions to get them to a professional marriage counselor, but he refused to go. And as is often the case, when a couple comes to me to talk about a marriage struggle, the woman will say, something is wrong with my marriage, and the man will say, something is wrong with my wife. It just typically goes that way. This guy refused to go to counseling, so they ended up coming to me. Some training, but not the training they needed. She was totally stubborn, very unbending in her opinions, and demands for a change in his lifestyle. She may have been right in her expectations, but she went about communicating that in ways that only fed into his very bad, volatile temper. He was hostile. He was hot-headed. He regularly stood up in our sessions and shouted, showing a power play over her and serious violent tendencies. I was very concerned. How and why they had ever become a married couple, I didn't understand. It was apparently going in a very bad place. The session that day ended badly. Fortunately, they had come in separate cars. She was going to stay with a girlfriend and not go home that night. A good choice, in my opinion, and I told them so, so they could hopefully each cool off a bit. I returned home. I was exhausted emotionally. Physical workout, that can tire you down. But emotional workouts can just rob you of all your energy. I was deeply troubled over where things might go. I was clearly concerned about potential violence in their relationship. And my concern was real. And it worked on me in a rather unusual way. I went to bed that night still worn out. I was quickly in a sound sleep when I received a phone call. The husband was on the other end and he was angry. He told me he was on his way to my house to have it out with me because he thought I'd sided with his wife on a couple of things that were absolutely wrong. He slammed down the receiver. I was a little stunned. A few moments later, I heard someone banging on my front door, and it was just moments, and yelling. It was him. My concern heightened an understatement. I went to my closet. I grabbed my softball bat from the game I'd played the night before. Just as I grabbed it, I heard the front door break down. He'd broken into the house. I heard him running up the stairs. 
Stomping down the hall toward our bedroom, thankfully Carolyn was still asleep. She sleeps very well when she gets there. And as he bolted through our bedroom door, I swung the bat and I took him out. He was done. That was when I woke up. I was standing by the bed. All the counseling was true. But from the phone call on, it was a dream. And as I stood by the bed, I was soaking wet from sweat. And I had my softball bat in my hands. I I didn't know what to do. I sat down on the bed. And I realized, I'm capable of murder. Oh, it was in my sleep. It was in my dream. I'm capable of this. I could do this. It wasn't even difficult. On our journey through the season of Lent, I hope we discover two core principles. Number one, we have flaws. We have flaws. We have flaws in our attitudes. We have flaws in our character. We have flaws in our behavior. We have flaws. And if we don't believe we have flaws, that's your first flaw, self-deception. We have them. We all do. And two, we need someone to rescue us. We need to be shown how to think right, how to speak right, how to behave right. We really need to be transformed. We need a Savior. The Ten Commandments given to Moses by God were not given so that we could live up to God's expectation. They were given so we would know we can't live up to God's expectation. We need God to live up to those things. We need the Savior. Pray with me as we dive into today's text. One of the seven things that God detests from Proverbs 6, the shedding of innocent blood, also known as murder. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name to seek to be more surrendered to you, more committed to your ways, more aware of our need, more centered in your will. I pray that your Holy Spirit would instruct us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and that he will transform us so that we will become what you want for us, to become like your son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. God the Father speaks to Moses, and Moses writes down on a tablet, you shall not murder. God the Father speaks to Solomon, the king of Israel, and Solomon writes, There are six things the Lord hates, even seven that are detestable to him. And one of those was hands that shed innocent blood. Twenty-one times in the Old Testament it is made clear. The same quotation. It is against God's will to shed innocent blood. It is unacceptable to murder. Have we got it? No murder allowed. Are you with me? Four times in the New Testament, we continue to hear that it is against God's will to shed innocent 
blood. Then Jesus, God's son, speaks up on this topic. And we heard it read just earlier, but hear it again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I liked it when it just said, don't murder. It was so much easier, so much more black and white. Now Jesus comes along and says, there's a slide you can get on. And this slide may lead to murder, but I'm telling you, when you're on the slide, you're in trouble. When you're on the slide, you're against the will of God. If you choose to follow Jesus, there is a deeper understanding of these things that result in murder. In our culture, murder is taking another person's life, taking it away from them by killing them, by ending it. In Jesus' culture, anger Calling someone an idiot, cursing someone, is to put on the same level as murder. It's an area we're not to travel in. It's something we're not to do. And I think I know about you, but I do know about me. I am guilty of those things. I may not have wanted to take a life, but I've been angry. It was a problem I had as a child. It's one of the things that Jesus redeemed me from rescued me out of, and took away. It's hard for me to get angry. Not because of me, but because of him. Calling someone a fool. Words are so simple. So easy to say. And especially when they're doing something foolish. My opinion, of course. And I've had people tell me how foolish I am. Their opinion, of course. Thing is, I think they were more right than I am. To drive this point home, listen to what Jesus says next. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. He ties it into worship. There are three critical points Jesus is making. Listen to what I believe he's saying here. Number one, our worship of God is not a category, nor is it a compartment of life. We humans tend to categorize things, especially us men. We've learned to do that well. There's a category for complaints, There's a category from when my wife is speaking to me and I'm watching a sports program. There's a category, and you can go on and on with categories we have in our our lives. We categorize our life by family life, by school life, work life, neighborhood life, church life. We've got categories for almost everything. But if we really read the Bible, we discover that this is not possible if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ. We are called to follow Jesus with our whole life, not just a category of it, not just a part of it, not just a section of it, not just a day of it, not just an hour or an hour and a half in worship of it. It's with our whole heart, 
all of our passion. It's with our soul, our essence of life and our volition. It's with our whole mind, what we think and what we feed into our mind. It's with our strength, our physical being and our strength of will. And as we begin to follow Jesus, we discover the second critical point he is making. Our worship of God is connected to everything we do, everything we're about. Essential to our worship of God, a loving relationship with God, is a loving relationship with people, the people God has made for our lives. The Apostle John makes this clear. Listen to him. It's not going to be on the screen. Anyone who says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 20, 21. And that leads to the third critical point Jesus is making. Our worship of God is so essential in life that reconciliation must not be put off ever. It is God's will for every Christian that there be an urgency to get right with people. But not just an urgency of time, it is an urgency of importance. It is both of those. Our worship is not real. It is not true. It is not right. It is not godly. If we are not right with the people in our lives, Jesus is saying here, don't come to worship if things are wrong in your relationships and you have something to do with it. And the worship of God, isn't that the centerpiece of what we're to be about? Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Oh yeah, and, and our neighbor as ourself. It is. But he's saying, being right with your fellow human beings is so crucial. Don't try to fake it with me when you're at odds with them. The general teaching is clear. Jesus said that his followers were not only to love their neighbor as themselves, but they were to love one another the same way that he has chosen to love us. Christianity is not complicated. It's incredibly challenging. And you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own without God, and you can't do it on your own without people around you to help you, encourage you, correct you, hold you accountable. It just can't be done in isolation. Christianity is sociology. It is not psychology. It is connected to other people as well as our connection to God. And the worshiping community is affected by the lack of genuine, real worship on the part of individuals who are not taking care of their relationships but are coming to give an appearance that they're worshiping God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Lent. Shows us we're guilty. 
but it does it with love. Because God loves us in the midst of our guilt. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus on the cross hanging there said, Father, forgive them. And this is Craig's interpretation of the language. They don't have a clue. And we don't, so often, we don't have a clue what he's asking for us to do. But he forgives us. I didn't ask for forgiveness, Father. I know, I give it anyway. Maybe that will help you turn, Craig. And it has over the years. From the age of 18 when I received Jesus in my life to now nearly 73, he's helped me turn many times. How many times has he helped you? Is there something you're holding back? Is there a relationship you won't forgive? Is there a relationship that causes nothing but irritation to you and you just as soon see that person go away? That's the slippery slope of murder. There are three relationship categories that we all have. The goal is that we do our part in removing the obstacles we can from our lives so that these relationships can be healthy and our worship personally and corporately can be genuine. There's people we have hurt. People we have hurt. There's people who have hurt us And then there's family, made up of people we have hurt and people who have hurt us. But those are three core groupings of people in our lives. And if we want to really worship God, here is our God-given plan of action. Instead of this... which is a dead body, maybe we didn't kill them, but we dismissed them. We threw them away. They are as good as dead to us. Instead of this, what God is looking for and what he intends to help us with is to become people who serve. We serve. We serve. How do we serve? Very simply. Number one, we pray. I've had some enemies in my life. That's probably a surprise, huh? No, maybe not. I've had enemies in my life, people who just don't like me at all, don't like the decisions I make, don't like the things I say. And there was a lot not to like before I became a Christian. There's been some things since then. But I've discovered the first antidote The first help to service is prayer. Let's say I'm not getting along with Diane. Now, that seems impossible. That must be my fault. I shouldn't have picked on Diane. I'm going to hear about this all week from the rest of the staff, if not... But I'm not getting along with Diane. I just, I don't like what's going on in her life. I don't like what she's saying. I don't like what she's doing. You know, it's just, she's just irritating me, no end. If I start to pray for Diane, God affects me, changes me. It's a powerful service to pray for someone. This is why Jesus said, pray for your enemies. It's not, 
It's not like, oh God, help her to see how guilty and wrong she is. That's not the prayer. It's pray for her welfare, pray for her well-being, pray for my understanding and clarity in what she might be saying or doing. I'm to pray for her. I serve someone by praying for them, not just because they have a need and I'm a pastor, but because I'm, I'm troubled by them. I need to be praying for them. That's God's call in my life to serve them. Not only am I to serve, I am also to own up to my behaviors toward them. Now, maybe they're 95% wrong and I'm 5% wrong. I can't just say, well, God help them with their 95. My prayer has to also be about my 5%. Now, I've never been only 5% wrong. Have you? Probably not. But we do think in those kinds of terms sometimes. I have got to confess my 5%. I'm sorry I've been short with you. I know I'm tall, but I'm short with you. (laughs) I haven't listened, and I apologize. That's wrong of me. I need to listen carefully to you. Carolyn, I probably should be saying that to you. (laughs) 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 Okay, there it's my 95%. But to pray and to confess. Third thing I can do in service is forgive. Well, they haven't asked for forgiveness. Well, did God wait for you to ask for forgiveness, Craig? Or did he forgive you before you even thought about needing to be forgiven? How many times would it begin to cure a relationship of brokenness by just, I am so sorry. I've held a grudge against you and I was wrong with that. And forgive that. That's a way of service. So I serve by praying. I serve by confessing. I serve by forgiving. And finally, I serve by blessing. By blessing. That is not a spiritual gift, by the way, blessing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. There's a difference A spiritual gift is a functional thing. The fruit of the Spirit is a character thing. And you don't get that fruit, but not that fruit. You get all those fruits. It's part of the character of Christ that's reproduced in us. And one of the characters is kindness, which is blessing in little doses. Little doses of encouragement. Little doses of, I've been thinking about you. Little doses of, Tell me again what you said there. I I didn't get it. Little doses of care. Little doses of holding a door open. Little doses of letting someone go in front of you in line. Those kinds of, those are the way we serve. And Jesus came to set us free from the prison of murder, which meant anger, calling people names, demeaning them and throwing them away in our lives. He says, how do you do that? You do that by getting reconciled. By blessing, by praying, by forgiving, by confessing. So how's your life? Are you on the slippery slope with anyone? Take care of it. Take care of it and take care of it now. 
Is there something you can do to mend a broken relationship that you're in? This Lenten season is meant to show us the prisons we put ourselves in and the Christ who saves us and redeems us and will help us get right so that we can fully worship God and do it with a heart that's right with those around us, those we have hurt, those who have hurt us, and those who are in our family, which fall into both those categories. Jesus longs for us to walk in health with him and with each other. He longs for this church to become a place where we are one with one another because Christ is truly Lord of our lives. So we reach out and care, and we serve. This is the gospel of our Lord that redeems us from the guilt of our lives. May he have his way in us. Pray with me. Holy, wonderful God, you never wronged us. You have nothing to confess about. You've always loved us. You've always blessed us. You've always forgiven us. Why don't I get that, Lord? Why don't we get that? And by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would reproduce that in our lives together and our lives personally so that Jesus Christ would truly be Lord in me and in my friends and in us together and become Lord in this community of Berlin and beyond to the glory of you, Father, to the glory of your Son whom you sent to redeem, to the glory of your Holy Spirit who empowers us to live right. We pray this. Amen.